Okay, good morning again. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Acts 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let's pray. And so, Father, as we just sang, we cry out to you, move. Help me deal with the topic this morning. Help me teach clearly. We all, Father, who are born again, desire the work and the moving of your Holy Spirit. And so in our midst, cause us not just to see or to think, but to love by the power of your Spirit what we see and what we think about as your Scripture is unfolded to us. Do this to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so in our journey through the Acts of the Apostles, last week we looked at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. In order to just see historically what happened on that day of Pentecost in the year A.D. 33. And in verse 4, the issue of speaking in tongues came up for the first time in the book of Acts. And actually, for the first time in any book of the Bible I have preached through over the years in this church. And not only that, before we ran across speaking in tongues, in the book of Acts, or in any sermon I have preached so far in Acts, this topic has come up because of you people in home groups. I could ignore it, move on to Peter's sermon, but I have decided not to do that. Speaking in tongues has been a major issue, even a divisive issue, issue in the church world over the last 120 years or so. And so that raises two huge questions. Number one is this. What in the world was speaking in tongues in the New Testament? What are they talking about? And the second question is this. Is that gift or Other gifts, we'll see in a moment, listed in 1 Corinthians, are they for today? Now, connected to that second question, are they for today or tongues, is the larger question, like I just said, are what some people will call the sign gifts, like prophecy, speaking in tongues, gifts of healing, the interpretation of tongues, are they for today? the year 433, or the year 1260, 
or the 1500s or for today? Or have those gifts only had their place in the first century while the apostles were alive and thus they passed away by the end of the first century? It is to that second question right there that we're going this morning. Decided to deal with that issue first before we go and just say, what is this particular gift called speaking in tongues from biblical text that we get? What can we learn about it? Not from people's experience today or any other time, but, but just from what is in the New Testament can we learn anything about what that was and what was happening? That's next week. So today, the big question is, are we to assume that these sign gifts like prophecy, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, gifts of healings, that they're not to be expected today? Or ought we expect them today? So the way I'm going to go about that first is I'm going to try, because this is a divisive issue within the evangelical church, and, and particularly with many of us who theologically we, we would fall in a category of Reformed. I'm going to try to be as honest and clear and thus persuade you from the position I disagree with first, which is cessationism that the gifts have ceased after the first century. Those who hold this position to, to cease, to stop cessationism, it doesn't mean they don't believe that God works miracles or that God doesn't heal. They actually do believe that. That's not the issue. Particularly, uh, people have their doctrine of salvation correct, that the Holy Spirit must cause a person to be born again in order to believe. That's, that's, an, that's a miracle that has only to do with God's mercy and grace. They believe in that miracle big time. But the question at hand is these particular gifts that we will see in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, they say those sign gifts have ceased and are no longer operating in the church. Why do they say that? Well, we're in the book of Acts now, and they would say, as you look at the book of Acts, it, it seems that Luke is trying to communicate very clearly that when we see healings and miracles and what he uses, Luke uses the term signs and wonders, that they are there in order to authenticate the apostles' ministry and their eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. And that those apostles are a unique brand of person with a calling. And let me just say, to that, I totally agree with them on the apostles. And so, when the last apostle died, those signs and wonders were operating by the Holy Spirit. So did these signs and wonders on any kind of a regular basis in the way they used them, died with them. So, when you open up the book of Acts, Peter's first sermon, he says this in chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, listen to this, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. There you go. He's the Messiah. How do you know? Watch what he did. Watch the miracles. Watch the healing. Then as you move through Acts, you turn to Acts 2.43, and Luke says this, And awe or fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Through the apostles. Say anything about all the other Christians, but through the eyewitness, handpicked men of Jesus. In Acts 5, verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. In chapter 14, verse 3, about the two apostles, Barnabas and Paul, it says, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, and bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their, the apostles' hands. And in chapter 15, verse 12, in the Council of Jerusalem, we read this, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so, as you read Acts, it seems that Luke is intending to show that signs and wonders were happening in order to give credence, credibility, to the apostles' message and their eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as His personal sent-out ones, who are also on a par with Moses as revelatory spokespersons. And so you have Eutychus falling asleep in church and he's dead and Paul goes down and raises him from the dead. You have Peter and John at the gate beautiful, the temple. No, we don't have any money, but what we have we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. A person who could not walk for 30 some odd years, stand up and walk and miraculously he does. And then to strengthen that argument, you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And in that chapter, the Apostle Paul is arguing for his true apostleship up against what he calls false apostles who have sneaked into the Corinthian church. And this is what he points to. Quote, verse 12, chapter 12, 2 Corinthians. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so it appears the signs and wonders had a special role healing, raising the dead, 
a special role in authenticating the apostles and their message, particularly the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And when they died, signs and wonders passed away with them. And then one more. You turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. And by the time of the writing of this book, Paul and Peter are both dead. The writer says to the Jewish Christians that he's writing to, think back 20, 25 years ago at your conversion. He says it this way. And therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard the gospel lest we drift away from it. We heard such a great message of salvation. Hey, watch this now. It was declared at first by Jesus in His ministry, by the Lord. And it was then attested to us, who remain alive, by those who heard Him while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will back then. So he says, don't you remember? So it sounds like the writer does not expect his hearers to be expecting as a normal thing now signs in wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Look back then. And one final nail in the coffin of the argument is church history. Over the last 2,000 years, has there ever been anyone with the actual gifts of healings and working of miracles like Paul? like Peter, like John. I know on church marquee after church marquee, I don't know if it's still happening, I don't even pay attention, but for years and my first couple decades, Sunday night, 6 p.m., healing service happening here. Okay. I know there are the Benny Hens of the world. I don't trust him further than I could pick him up and throw him. And I have been to many of those kinds of meetings in my early Christianity. The question is, has there been anyone with verifiable, miraculous signs and wonders and powers that the Holy Spirit's working through them as through Paul, Peter, John, Barnabas, and the other apostles. And so many of those who love Jesus and are cessationists, they look at TBN, the Trinity Broadcasting Network over the last number of decades. They look at international healing ministries, and what they see is how crazy, doctrinally, in error, and dangerous 
they are, and they see them as a blight on the church. And so do I. Now, I don't come down where they come down, though, with a position that the gifts of the Spirit, we're going to see in a minute. I'm talking about Paul and Peter. I'm talking about what was happening with, with Aunt Mary and Uncle Bill in the church as a whole in Corinth, and I would assume in all the churches in the first century. But sometimes, even with some of you, to be analytical is not necessarily to be in unbelief. There is a difference between faith, faith that God works by the Holy Spirit dynamically through gifts of the Spirit today. There is a difference between faith and gullibility. And I'm not for gullibility. I am for faith. And so, in response to a cessationist argument, well, there seems to be in the Bible uh, some kind of a continuity between Jesus' preaching of the kingdom of God and then the ministry of the church after he's raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. In Luke 10, verse 9, Luke says this, let's just know this, what Jesus said, and this refers not to the twelve, this refers to actually 72 men. At that time, Jesus said, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. And so preaching of the kingdom of God, which the church is charged to do, seems like it's charged to heal the sick, maybe. Secondly, when you read Acts, it's not true that signs and wonders only happened through apostles. Luke gives us two specific instances of non-apostles. They were deacons. Take care of the tables. Make sure the women over here are treated fairly. Take care of the monies to do all that. They're called deacons. And so we read this in chapter 6, verse 8. Luke says, And Stephen who was not an apostle. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And in chapter 8, verses 6 to 7, there's another non-apostle, another deacon, Philip, and we read this, And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And later on in Acts, Luke lets us know, he, Philip has two daughters who grow up, and they prophesied. Seemed that they prophesied on a 
fairly regular basis with that gift. Then, in Galatians 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul, yes, in this Letter, fighting for the gospel, very angry about the false teachers infiltrating the church. But in the midst of it, this is what he says. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or does he do it by hearing with faith? And when he said that, does he who supplies the Spirit and does miracles? That supplying is a present tense participle. It means when he's writing it, he's over in Antioch of Syria now, not in all of those different churches in the region of Galatia that he and Barnabas planted together. He's here, and while he writes, he says, the one who is working miracles among you, is he doing it? By works of the law are because of your heart of faith. He assumes it's happening in the church. Okay. All right. We're really not there to the crux of it yet. But I'm, uh, I am not a cessationist. If any in our church is our cessationist, they're totally welcome to be members in our church. It's not an issue that we're going to divide over. But the reason I'm not a cessationist, it's not because I don't agree with some of their arguments and the stuff that bugs them, because I actually do agree with some. Like the difference between signs and wonders through the apostles versus signs and wonders through anybody else on a regular basis at all throughout church history. At the core, the reason theologically I cannot buy cessationism, now I may get up to heaven and say, I'm totally missing wrong. But the reason right now why I cannot is because of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 12, 13, and 14. So, let's turn to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read from chapter 12. Paul is teaching the church, the whole church, not just leaders in the church. The whole membership of the church is to hear and to read the letter, and it's so clear in the context. He means the body of Christ here as a whole in Corinth. Starting with verse 7, Paul says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, literally the word, logos, of wisdom, and to another, the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. 
to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. So, Paul assumes that this dynamic of ministering and serving one another in the local church by the Holy Spirit's enablement is happening. He goes on in verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He, the Holy Spirit, wills. And you jump down to the end of chapter 12, start in verse 27, and he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So Paul is saying, yes, that unique office of apostle is absolutely first. Then these other giftings. And he clearly means to the body as he goes down through as a whole, like administration, raising up teachers, speaking in tongues. He's clearly talking about all of them. It is in chapter 12 where we get that great passage which is still around this whole issue. The finger can't say to the toe, I don't need you. The head to the elbow. Oh, what a picket, got it? He's talking to the whole body. And so, Paul taught this. Now, whether I understand what these gifts actually are or not is not the issue. Whether I see these gifts in my local church or in church life in general, experientially, is not the issue. First and foremost. Application-wise, that's going to be, yeah, but doctrinally, that's not the issue. The issue is, Paul taught it. Now, okay, he taught lots of stuff. Okay? And so unless someone shows me, yes, it's true, Paul taught that the Holy Spirit given gifts were operating in the early church in the mid-50s of the first century, but there is solid, clear, good, biblical evidence to understand that though that was true then, since the first century, it's not true anymore. Unless I'm convinced of that, I can't be a cessationist. I mean, any more than very smart brothers and sisters, smarter than I am, and I did teach 
a series on water baptism a couple months ago. Uh, many brothers throughout history and today that I look to, we share the gospel with, and they're brothers in Christ, and I listen to their arguments on infant baptism, and I'm not there. I can't buy it. I just Maybe I'm going to find out I'm wrong, but I just am not persuaded biblically to baptize infants. Does that make sense to you? Same here. There's some very smart cessationists throughout church history and today, but to this point, I just can't as a biblical, with biblical fidelity, as much as they want to be, to say, I'm a Bible guy, and I, I, I just can't see that, what you're trying to tell me yet. Okay. So, very smart guys. How do they now, at this point then, with 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, argue that these gifts have passed away? So let's go there and hear their argument. Or a couple arguments. Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians first. I'm going to read verses 8 to 12. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so, here is their argument at the core. You see verse 10 there? The phrase, when the perfect comes. Cessationists understand the perfect that is to come when Paul wrote it. It hadn't come yet, but it's going to come when he wrote it. They understand that perfect which is to come to be something that comes before the second coming of Christ. One way some of them argue it is this. When Paul says, when the perfect comes, it is the Greek word teleon, which Paul uses two other times in this letter of 1 Corinthians. And one of them is in chapter 14, verse 20, where he writes, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Teleoi. It's the same word, just the inflection of the ending. Same word, meaning mature. And that's a very good translation in chapter 14 because of the context. Grow up in your thinking. Become developed or mature. And then in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, he uses the word again. Yet among the mature, the teleois, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Again. 
That's how he's using it. Not among those who are perfect, but mature. And so the argument goes like this. Yes, prophecy exists and did exist in the church in, a, in the wider way, as Paul says, in the first century. Tongues were a reality when Paul wrote, yes. But when the mature, okay, the teleon comes, they understand it this way, some. That is the maturity of the church when it arrives. Meaning, when the Gentiles are finally fully included in the church, the maturity of church arise, happens by the end of the first century. Now there's no more need for these gifts. They don't all argue it that way. Here's another, probably more, argue it this way. Paul says, prophecy, the gift of the word of knowledge, speaking in tongues, Interpretation of tongues, they exist, but they are going to pass away, Paul says. When? It's clear right there, verse 10. When the perfect comes. And the perfect coming refers to the completion of the New Testament writings. When they're completed, the gifts will pass away. And that happened by the end of the first century. Since the last apostle died, we have everything we needed. And it is in our 27 New Testament writings. And thus there is no more need for these gifts. Sign gifts that Paul laid out. Teaching is not a sign gift. No one argues that the gift of teaching is gone, okay? Or the gift of administration or the gift of helping, okay? All right. These kinds of, in other words, prophecy and gifts of healings and gifts of working of miracles and tongue speaking have passed away because the perfect, the complete, perfect, inerrant, infallible Word of God, we call it the New Testament has come. How do they get there? This is how they argue it. Look at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 13. For we know in part. Now, he's mostly, that know has got to be talking about what he called the word of knowledge in the context. It doesn't make sense any other way. Okay, So whatever that thing. We know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And here's the key. They understand that the prophecy, that the word of knowledge, they understand Paul to be saying that's on a par with Moses. That's on a par, in other words, as, as divine revelation of truth, doctrinal truth, 
with Jeremiah. That if there is a prophecy by Mrs. Smith in the church of Corinth, and she prophesied, I mean, you could put it in the New Testament because it was a Holy Spirit gift of prophecy. If someone spoke in tongues, and it was by the Spirit, which Paul makes clear, yeah, we agree with that, but then someone interpreted it, and what that person said, you might as well tack it on to the New Testament. That's what they seem to be thinking about these gifts. And so that's happening, they would say, in the first century, but it's only portions. It's part. It's incomplete. The New Testament isn't completed yet. Paul's still writing. Peter's going to have his to write. James hasn't written. Well, he might have written by that time. That's an early epistle. John's stuff certainly isn't written yet. So God was working that way in the very early church until the foundation of the church was fully completed, fully laid. The writings are done. All of Paul's letters are done, and Peter's two are done, and John's three, and the book of Revelation, and Jesus' brother James and Jude, they're done. And whoever wrote Hebrews and the Gospels and Luke with Acts in his Gospel. That's what they're saying. Now, if the cessationists are right in their understanding of particularly the word gifts, prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, if they're right that they refer to revelation from God Himself as inerrant and infallible when it was spoken, then clearly when Paul says, when the perfect comes, as opposed to the parts, just you only get it in part, then obviously he means the same category of revelation from God, which we have in the New Testament. And thus, by the end of the first century, it has been completed. All the writings are there. And so the partial word gifts, prophecy, word of knowledge, tongues, interpretation, they stopped as Paul predicted. And thus the gifts are no longer needed in the life of the church. We have the Word of God, which we do, written. We have the only, and this is, so you not be clear where I'm coming from, we have the only sure, infallible, inerrant Word of God in what is written in the Hebrew Scripture and the Greek New Testament. That's where they're coming from. Now, I'm going to give my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ the benefit of the doubt. Is I hope they would give to me that we both want to be Bible people. That we don't intentionally want to read into text of Scripture something that the the author whom God used, like in this case, Paul, who wrote it, did not himself intend to mean. So having said that,
This is, this is key, at least trying to understand what I'm trying to say this morning. I think those who argue the way I just said and, and come to this cessationist viewpoint, they make a big, huge assumption that I do not make. And that's really where the issue lay, I think. In other words, the assumption they make is that prophecy, verbal gifts operating in the church, in the body as a whole, in the membership in the mid-first century, that they are on the same level as revelation from God that is infallible, on a level with Jeremiah and Moses and Paul and Peter. I don't make that assumption at all. Not only that, I don't think it is. If I did think that's what those gifts were, I would be a cessationist. And there are many in the world today, in the church world today, who talk as if that's what those gifts are, and I say run from them, flee from them. They're dangerous. So, how now then do I deal with 1 Corinthians 13 in response to their argument? Okay, Paul says, there is a time when these gifts that Paul's referring to, there's a time when they will cease to be operating. They'll pass away. When is that? Well, he says it very clearly. When the perfect comes. Which, it seems crystal clear to me, and I'll show you why, that means the second coming of Christ. That means, essentially, the resurrection of the dead and all things are made new and we lay off this sinful dwelling that we live in, etc. There will be no need for them there. Why do I say that? Because in chapter 13... Paul did not change subjects that he started at the beginning of chapter 12. This, these three chapters as a whole are all dealing with the way he starts off. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. I don't want you to be uninformed. And so that's his topic. It's been his topic through chapter 12, and it is his topic to, through chapter 13, and will continue to be through chapter 14. And so Paul, in the midst of doing what he did in chapter 12 and what he will do about what's happening in chapter 14, he inserts chapter 13 in there on purpose because the Corinthian church as a whole is being selfish. They're being unloving toward each other in their gatherings together. They are insensitive and are only looking inward. And it's causing a lot of problems. As a lack of love in the church will always do. And so Paul is arguing that these gifts are meant to be used as tools of loving others. And you Corinthians... That is not what you're doing as a whole. But you are misusing these tools, these gifts, 
in an insensitive, unloving way in the way you have been behaving when you gather together to worship. And so to the extent, he says, to the extent your use of whatever gifts God has given you by the Spirit, to the extent they are not motivated by caring for your brothers and sisters, that they're not motivated by loving others, then your practice is worthless. No matter how much you speak in tongues, how much you prophesy or teach, that's what he's driving at. This is what he says in chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. See if you hear it. If I speak in tongues, the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, I got the gift of giving. And if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And that's why Paul says in verse 8, love never ends. Ever. Your need throughout eternity, Christian, your need to love the other will never cease. Love is in a totally different category than the gifts of the Holy Spirit that Paul is referring to, like prophecy and tongue speaking and interpretation of tongues and gifts of healing and words of knowledge and administrating and teaching. They're totally different animals. Love is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Gifts are not fruit. They're gifts. And you can be the best teacher on planet earth and die and go to hell. Wonderful gift. You don't love God. And you don't love others. So he says in verse 8, love never ends even when you die and await for your resurrection body, you will love. And for all eternity, when you get your resurrection body, we who are in Christ will love without hindrance of our sin. Love is very unlike gifts. They, the gifts will end. There will come a time there will be no need for them. Not so with love. So let's hear verse 8 again slowly. Love 
never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So think about how to love others with your gifts. Your gift of teaching, your gift of prophecy, your gift of tongue speaking, your interpretation of tongues. Learn with these gifts to love others. Here's Paul's point. Or just shut your mouth. That's his point. So Paul is saying, love and these Holy Spirit given gifts are totally different categories. Loving others is central and it's unending. Gifts are tools and they are temporal. Put them in their place and let love dictate how you use the tools or the giftings. So then, as Paul moves into the main text that we're considering now then, here we go. Here's the question. What do you mean that love, unending, and gifts will pass away? What do you mean these are in totally different categories? And he unfolds it. Verse 9. For, okay, he's going to explain now. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be or will pass away. Now, when the perfect comes, clarity of knowledge will happen. We won't need to hear partial, imperfect, fuzzy fellow sinners during this broken evil age in which we all struggle and live. We won't need each other then to give words of encouragement, insight, boost, a knowledge the Spirit prompted the other person. We won't need that then. There's a future age that's coming and it's not yet. Love is eternal. The gifts are temporal. They're for this age only. And then they're gone. And so you go back to verse 10. And let's see why then in this text, this text, verse 10, when the perfect comes, is not only not an argument that the gifts have ceased. But Paul argues why they are to be in operation today until Christ returns. Verse 10, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, the partial in the context clearly refers to the gifts Clearly refers to prophecy, tongue speaking, interpretation of tongues, healings. Okay. Clearly refers to that. So, 
when the perfect comes, those giftings will pass away. Go on. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see not clearly. We see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Now, I know in part. Then, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So that verse 12 there is referring to final salvation. It's referring to being released from all of our sinfulness, our fuzziness of minds, like a fuzzy, foggy mirror. We get glimpses, but it's all distorted because of us in the state we are in. We see nothing clearly right now. Not even the clear, inerrant, infallible Word of God. So we can take what is absolutely superintended throughout history, the writing of the Old and the New Testament, and guess what? We receive it as broken, fuzzy, brains deteriorating, hearts hardened this day more than yesterday, and then the Word comes, and it's messy. That's the state we're in. Even with spiritual gifts. They come through messy people. Would anybody put down the gift of the pastor teacher in our day and age? No cessationist would. No non cessationist would. Does anybody think that I standing up here speak as an infallible, inerrant pastor? If you do, you're deceived. Nobody does. But is it profitable? It ought to be, as you test all things by the Word of God. But why? I'm taking that which is from God in its original context. This is infallible and perfect. Yeah, I know. And then it filters through this person. And you know it's tainted somewhere here or there. And God can still use me. And with all these gifts, no one's claiming, or they ought not, infallibility or inerrancy in the kind of operations of the Spirit through one another. But oh boy, have many of us been helped through all of these kinds of gifts. So just notice real quickly then again, it's going to be very different than in the future, which isn't yet. Notice verse 12 again. Paul uses the word then twice. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now, I know in part. 
fully, even as I have been fully known. Then, in the future, when Paul writes, what's the then referring to in the paragraph? He didn't start this paragraph off with the word then, or it would make zero sense. There must have been some antecedent to the then that it's referring back to. And there is, and it's crystal clear. It's verse 10. When the perfect comes, then I'll see face to face. Then I will know fully. When the perfect comes is the second coming of Christ and the consummation of the kingdom and the wiping out of our sin nature forever. Being really free and seeing face to face. Then we will drop all these limitations we all have in receiving or in giving gifts. We will drop the limitations of our foggy mirrors and we'll see clearly. But until then, we see in a mirror fogged up by a steamy shower. And until then, there are these fuzzy gifts coming through broken, fuzzy saints. Even the verbal gifts working through tainted people. Okay. I know it's late. Sorry. i got five more minutes. I'm going to restate everything I did in 20 seconds, which is to just paraphrase the core of Chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. So you, you know, okay, that's where he stands. That's, what he, that's the way he understands it. Paul is saying, when the perfect comes, that is when Christ returns and we put off the mortal hindrances of this present life and our flesh, then the imperfect knowing of Tongue speaking and interpretation and words of knowledge and prophecy, they will pass away because there will be no more need for them because we will see and we will know so clearly and so fully. But, and here's Paul's argument, for love's sake, seek spiritual gifts in order to be a blessing and to love others better. Okay, let me just, before I close, then say this. One place I do agree with genuine, Christ-loving, spirit-filled cessationist is... that there is a huge difference that some in the so-called charismatic movement don't make in their in error. There is a huge difference between Jesus' personal apostles whom he talked to in his resurrected body and commissioned them as his personally sent apostles. Huge difference between those few men 
and everybody else throughout church history. And with that, there was a unique, unprecedented signs and wonders and miracles in Jesus' ministry as confirmation of his Messiahship and in the apostles' ministry as the eyewitness testifiers to his resurrection. So I do not expect that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12, like that level thing, nor now. So don't ever blur the distinction between who Paul and Peter were with anybody else in church history, even if they put the name apostle before their name on the magazine and bishop and five other kind of different kinds of things and speak as if they in their person are an authoritative spokesperson that you ought to listen just to them along with and as you would listen to the book of Ephesians. But instead, flee from those nuts. I mean it. Those who claim an apostolic kind of a Pauline, Peter type of an authority because they exist and God gave that to them, flee. So, we stand upon the foundation of the revelation that the Holy Spirit has spoken once and for all in the Hebrew Old Testament and in the Greek New Testament. And so my encouragement as we close is standing, resting on that foundation, seek. Seek to better love others through Holy Spirit-given gifts, movings, operations, knowing He will never give you a new piece of theological information that is not already clearly given in Scripture. So seek the gifts for love's sake, standing upon the solid rock of Scripture. And if you do, then we will be able to do exactly what Paul commands us to do, the end of 1 Thessalonians. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. He did not say, just take and swallow every so-called prophecy. He didn't say that. And he will never say, read Moses and test and see, according to your culture, whether Moses is right or wrong. He would never say that. He didn't say, you know what, yeah, maybe Moses missed that one where thou shalt not commit adultery. There's only nine commandments now. He, doesn't, he would never say that. Because for Paul, prophecy, in the way he's talking about here, is an utterly different, lower level than what he is talking about through Moses or anybody else. But we're called to love one another through gifts. 
Let's be used by Him. Press in to the person, the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh, Father, You are good. We thank You so much that even this topic that Your servant Luke has brought us to, these abilities, the working of Your Spirit in all of us who have come to love Jesus because You, by the Holy Spirit, have raised us from the dead to taste and see the truth of the Gospel. And it is all to You, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, for You have purchased such a great salvation. And we thank You that You, by Your Spirit, whom You've poured out upon us, is taking care of Your sheep to the glory of Your holy name. Amen.